Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm Nick Cheeseman, a research fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. On the sidelines of the World Justice Projects Conference in Chicago this October, I had the good fortune to speak with Jodi Raja, a research professor at the American Bar Foundation on her first book, Authoritarian Rule of Law, Legislation, Discourse and Legitimacy in Singapore, published by Cambridge University Press in 2012. Authoritarian Rule of Law makes a major contribution to the law and society literature by examining how rule of law's discourse and praxis in Singapore serves liberal ends. Through a series of case studies on legislation criminalising vandalism and regulating the print media, legal profession and religion, Raja explains how the Singaporean political elite brought the rule of law idea into compliance with its nation-building objectives. Along the way, she raises critical questions about the meaning and place of law in a post-colony that celebrates colonial rule as a cause of its modernity, prosperity and plurality. Many of these questions transcend Raja's case study and go to larger debates about the concept of law and the functions of courts in other parts of Asia as well as to the inherent tensions in the rule of law ideal itself. I hope you enjoy the interview with apologies that in parts the sound quality is a little poor. Today on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, we're joining Jyoti Raja and to speak about her publication, Authoritarian Rule of Law, Legislation, Discourse and Legitimacy in Singapore. Jyoti, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Nick. It's a pleasure to have you with us, and so I'd like to begin by asking you a little bit about how you came to, to write this book. It started, oddly enough, with an invitation to teach a couple of lectures in a comparative legal traditions course, which was being it was a relatively new course at the time at the National University of Singapore, and uh, it was taught by Gary Bell who had a really open and pluralistic approach to to what counted as law, which I think was partly the gift of his McGill education. And um, Gary wanted to, we were working with Glenn, he was working with Patrick Glenn's wonderful book, um, and just didn't know someone who could teach the two lectures on Hindu legal traditions, and I volunteered myself. And and started investigating all the all the reported cases that, in some way or other, referred to Hindu law or Hindu identity through either caste terms or race names or in some way or other. And um, with the help of a friend who is also a sociologist who works a lot on race in Singapore. I learned to read cases differently because at the time I did my law degree, legal education in Singapore was extremely positivistic. It's not the case anymore, but it was at the time I did law, which I found 
excruciatingly boring. But with my friend Nirmala Purushottam's help and Gary's The Opportunity Created by Gary Bell, I read these cases very much as um, through the lens of an ethnographer and saw with the benefit of being in, in Singapore and the you know, in our current millennium, it made me see all these shifts in meaning and in power relationships between these identity categories and the, um, the, the state, the colonial state, the nation state. And so I thought, I'm going to do a PhD on Hindu law. Clearly, there's such a gap on this work with reference to Singapore as a nation state, but also the straight settlements that someone like me who was just beginning to look at it or looked at it because the opportunity arose um, could be the person standing in front of a large lecture theatre <laughs> positioning myself as an expert. So that's what I started on, and I went to the University of Melbourne. The Asian Law Centre is absolutely fantastic. had the opportunity to work with Pip Nicholson, who I think I was very lucky to have as a supervisor. And I had planned the structure of my dissertation, and it was going to end with this really interesting piece of legislation in Singapore called the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act. And I worked best with deadlines, and there was going to be a law and religion conference at ANU, and there was an early career workshop day. I thought, this is perfect, I need this deadline. And I submitted an abstract to present a paper on the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act, which was going to be my last chapter and was fortunate enough to go. We had some really wonderful people there, including Margaret Davis. I love her work, and um, she was generous, generous enough to be there at the Early Career Workshop and give really useful feedback. Carolyn Evans, um, who was one of the conveners of that conference, she's now Dean of Melbourne Law School. I got this really rich um, feedback on my paper. And I, as I worked more and more, on the maintenance of religious harmony act, I realized that this piece of legislation led to, led to particular events and other pieces of legislation. And after two years, I realized that what I was producing wasn't, wasn't a dissertation on Hindu law and the straight settlements and into the post-colonial nation state, but instead it was uncovering a particular pattern um, of the relationship between lawmaking through legislation, lawmaking that was in many ways marginalizing courts, and lawmaking that relied on a particular access to public discourse, to the capacity to be able to say this is what the nation state needs, this is what certain terms mean. And that's how I ended up with authoritarian rule of law seems to me that this way of reading legal documents and thinking about categories differently is a significant part of the work that you've done subsequently. And perhaps you could say a little bit more about how your thinking about reading of these source materials developed at this stage and that we can go into more from there. Yes. It owes a lot to Norman Fairclough's 1989 work, Language and Power, um, and the, the more technical, painful part of that work has to do with functional grammar 
And I found it too difficult to read legal texts through the lens of functional grammar. But his point, and, and Fairclough's work draws on Bourdieu and Habermas and Foucault, so all this critical theory that informs the linguistic term. Uh, the linguistic turn is in Fairclough's work, but also that really foundational um, Marxist approach about uncovering power and recognizing ways in which institutions and communication and language masks power, and that the um, the beginning of of social justice, making change happen begins with attending to what is and how how current structures um, and institutions operate. So Norman Fairclough's work, very, very foundational. Um, what I learned through sociology about the construction of social categories um, and then also my own um, passion for literature and it's not fashionable anymore, but the close reading of text, which we're trained in in, in in literature, which is something that Fairclough does as well. It is close reading of text, but not not in that same literary way. So I just I drew all these strands together because I realized, um, for example, in public discourse, alliteration can be so effective, um, and and putting all these things together is, I think, what led me to read legal texts the way I do. So there's an intellectual story there, but uh, at the start of the book you also uh, talk about, you describe it as an insider story. It's a, there's a personal element, and you're, um, you, you draw on a number of anecdotes and experiences also that lead you into the contents of like to, to speak to that aspect of the work at all, the insider story aspect. Yeah, it, that's an interesting thing, the preface. I think it's part of the element of moving away from that doctrinal legal education. And it's something that's done in disciplines like anthropology and, and sociology. And it was to acknowledge to myself, to make visible to my reader, um, the way in which I was approaching this work, things I might not see about my own blind spots that a reader might be able to see, but also um, experiences that in one way or another I realized in retrospect had shaped me. So in that preface I do talk about this moment when I was, as a, as a second-year law student, really bored with the doctrinal <laughs> legal education I was receiving, and rather more enjoying being editor of the Singapore Undergrad, which was at the time the major publication of the Singapore Students Union, the National University of Singapore Students Union, and had a long history. And um, we had a constitutional law professor, Hugh Rawlings, who I think now is in politics as a Welsh politician. And I really enjoyed his classes. He was lovely. Um, and he gave us, it was just after Lee Kuan Yew, who was then Prime Minister, had made this quite dramatic and controversial speech, which became, which launched what became known as the Graduate Mother Debate. 
where he, it was a National Day rally speech, and he said he was concerned about falling birth rates amongst graduate women. Um, so what year was that? Was it 92? I think it was, yeah. Um, and Professor Rawlings gave us a hypothetical in class where he mentioned the Procreation Encouragement Act, which was hilarious, of course, and it's such a powerful way to teach, I think, to to bring humor, but also such a, to capture the essence of what was being, the policy that was being formulated and articulated. And so, because I was editor of, the, <laughs> of this publication, I wrote the act, without realizing that there was all this regulation around um, the use of the crest, the national crest. And of course, in a country like this, right, everywhere we look, there's stars and stripes and, um, you know, it's on underwear, it's on socks, it's on everything. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't part of my understanding that there was this restriction, there's this reverence with which the, the crest had to be held. And I reproduced it because I wanted it to look, I wanted the aesthetics of the um, Procreation Encouragement Act to look as authentic as possible. It had margin notes. Legislation seems to have dropped margin notes, just like an earlier body of legislation had preambles, and that seems to have been dropped. But I tried to make it look as much like what we were studying. And, um, and shortly after it came out, I was invited to have a conversation with um, I think the student liaison officer. Um, so it made me realize, oh, yes. And, and she mostly wanted to know, because at the end, I acknowledged the idea I had borrowed. And it was from Professor Rowling's tutorial. And she asked me again and again about that, which I found very confusing at the time. That was in 1992, so I finished my dissertation at the end of 2009. And as I was working through it, it made me realize that this, this strand ran through the nation-state's discourse, that the outsider, the foreigner, was dangerous in, you know, in a range of ways. And I think in particular when it came to critique of democracy or rule of law in Singapore, the Western foreigner has long been regarded as um, ignorant and interfering. And there's, a, there's a certain irony there, given, of course, some of the conclusions of the book around uh, the, the role that colonial traditions continue to play uh, in Singapore today. But perhaps before we get to them, to, to start at the, the other end of the text, can you say a little bit about um, what, why authoritarian rule of law? What is it and why write it? Um, well, the title, and when I reflect on these things, it makes me realize what a what a collaborative project um, a dissertation and, and then the monograph from the dissertation is. The, the title was articulated, probably he didn't realize he was articulating the title, but at Melbourne Law School by Sh Professor Sean McVeigh. He kept using this term, and I thought, but I haven't seen anything written that uses this language, authoritarian rule of law. I was jealous of Tom, Tom Ginsberg and Tamir Mustafa's rule by law, 
title. If they hadn't used it, I would have used it. Um, but Sean McVeigh was very kind. He's very, very generous as a mentor and a scholar, and he had read parts of my parts of my book, and he used this term, and he talked about how Dicey was formulating his um, coordinates for rule of law at a time of authoritarianism. Um, my, and my dissertation title, nobody, nobody could say without stumbling over, it was legislating illiberalism. And it was a bit of a tongue twister, and I realized, no, this was not a good idea to have a tongue twister for a book title. So authoritarian rule of law, because, because Singapore is the World Bank's poster child, right? Singapore scores so well in all these rule of law indicators, and you and I have just been at a conference on indicators. And this was one of the things that I needed to figure out for myself. I thought, why is it that we do score so well and we are so desired by um, investors? And we, we have the good life. You know, as Singaporeans, we have so much to be grateful for. Um, and I was acutely aware of these um, paradoxes. And as Singaporeans, I think we have the social memory of the progress that's been made, the, the difference that's been made by PAP rule is very sharp. And particularly in my childhood, it was very heightened because my parents and you know, everyone in my generation, parents had been children during the Japanese occupation. They knew what had been achieved under PAP rule in terms of material prosperity. But mine was also the generation in which we were the products of PAP rule and PAP prosperity and this extraordinary stability, we had received these gifts. Um, but when I was at law school, uh, it was that was the time the so-called Marxist conspiracy happened, or just after. But it meant it was people I knew. I think it was just the year I'd graduated. Um, and someone who was my contemporary at law school, was amongst those who was detained and accused of conspiring against the state. And it was the first time that um, an incident like this had happened in my... I think there were minor incidents when I was too young of a child, like the so-called European Marxists, the journalists who were detained at that time. But this was the first time it was happening at an age in which I was politically conscious and aware. And and what I knew from my own direct experience wasn't, I wasn't convinced by the public discourse. So in fact, the maintenance of religious harmony, one of the arguments I make in the book is that it comes out of this moment, the Marxist conspiracy. And I trace back through the language of the maintenance of religious harmony act Amendments to the Legal Profession Act, um, amendments to the Newspaper and Printing Presses Act. And this was when I realized there is this pattern of something happens, legislations either enacted or amended. Um, and I thought that the Anglo-American tendency to look to the courts for lawmaking and legal events, that there was that was a distortion in in the lens for for the specifics of Singapore, and that what I really needed to needed to do was to concentrate 
on this pairing between legislation and what was happening in the political landscape. And you, you do that very effectively throughout the book, not only with um, that particular piece of legislation, but the number of other pieces and corresponding events that you are alluding to. But perhaps before we go into those again, I'd like to just pause for a moment on um, this rule by law, uh, authoritarian rule of law, rule of law distinction. If you can unpack what you're working with there, this, this binary between the rule of law and rule by law, especially, I, I'm interested to hear that you might have taken the title rule by law had a Tom Ginsburg and Tamir Mustafa not got it first. So perhaps then, um, please give some more indication about that conceptual grounding and then uh, from there we'll go into the five uh, very interesting case studies. Um, when I first started working on this, one of the things that struck me was how much, like, how, how much confusion there was amongst political scientists when it came to categorizing Singapore as a regime time. And I found, you know, there's this whole range of, of descriptors that's applied to Singapore as a regime time. But I found Gary Rodin's um, analysis of how and why Singapore was authoritarian the most convincing because it, it spoke to a history in, in the early moments of the nation state and the way in which it was um, the, the playing field for politics really had... And this has, of course, so much to do with the British and the, you know, the context of the Cold War. Um, so I, I, um, I relied a lot on Gary Rodin's classification, categorization of Singapore. And then Kanishka Jayasuriya's analysis of dual state legality drawn from the way in which the British had governed you know, vast, vast parts of the empire, but certainly Singapore such that um, law relating to commerce in contemporary Singapore, certainly in, you know, pretty much through through the post-colonial period, is on par with the liberal West and law relating to individual rights and, you know, these more liberal values, Western liberal values, is regressive and it's entirely consistent with the way the British ruled. And I thought that this tension, this paradox, was consistent with many other paradoxes that shape law in Singapore and <laughs> that are a feature of colonial discourse and, and continuing Western discourse on rule of law. Um, so that's why I thought the pairing needed to be between authoritarianism on the one hand and rule of law on the other. Because, as you know, I mean, this is a feature of your own work as well, with the Rule of Law Promotion Project gaining all this momentum from the post-89 moment, um, democratization and rule of law have become very enmeshed. So I thought it was important to point to the ways in which the achievement of certain aspects of rule of law efficiency, the minimal corruption, the um, all these the procedural correctness, you know, all these things that Singapore excels at, that this could be paired with an authoritarian politics. 
and you, and you make that point very powerfully through the case studies. So, so let's take a, a look at some of them. We have, uh, you've already alluded to the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act, which you indicated was the, was the starting point for what developed later. Um, but that's not the first of the case studies that you have. The first one is the Vandalism Act, and then uh, after that, uh, number of other acts concerning the media, the legal profession, and also, most recently, public order. So, perhaps I'll leave it up to you as to which order you might like to take them in, but um, we can go into the legislation a bit more, and also, of course, the, the corresponding case studies that speak very clearly to how the legislation is realised through practices it's interesting that the book presents it chronologically, but I, I uncovered it um, the other way around because I was doing a genealogy of the present, a history of the present, and worked from what I thought would be my endpoint, the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act, which led me you know, then to the previous act, to the previous act, to the previous act. And the point at which I, I then actually had to hunt around to see what would the... What would the prior be to the amendments to the, to the um, discussion on the Press Act? And I was a little bit stuck there because the Press Act, there were detentions. Um, and we saw all the, the patterns that informed the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act and the amendments of the Legal Profession Act. It was there for the Press Act. So I went through <laughs> all the legislation to end and also looked at what was being reported in the press at, at the same time. And that's when I realized that in this very early moment in Singapore's history, Singapore as a young post-colonial nation-state, not yet an Asian tiger, not yet you know post-colonial miracle, 1966, almost a year to the day that it had enacted. So there was a lot of lawmaking in those early years. And I thought, why, why one on vandalism? It seemed not to be something that a young country, that was young country on the, you know, development trajectory, would be paying much attention to, and the parliamentary debates gave away the subtext of the events that this had to do with opposition party activity, uh, a left-wing opposition party that was protesting against the presence of U U.S. troops fighting in South Vietnam at the time on rest and recreation leave in Singapore. And what was fascinating to me was that vandalism was a cipher for for this kind of political activity. Um, and I think one of the most really extraordinary things about that act was the way in which it drew upon colonial legal technologies, specifically corporal punishment, and legitimised that reinvention of corporal punishment by saying the British, this is what the British do, this is part of what we have inherited from the British. And this language of inheritance um, that informs all of our history, well, you know, at key moments, the, the key departures I explained as it's different for us, we're small, we're young, we're particularly vulnerable, or we have Asian values at a particular time, there was the Asian values discourse, which is not so dominant anymore. Um, but that otherwise 
to say this is the way the British did it was already legitimizing. And I think this comes from the fact that the British spoke about themselves that way, colonial power um, spoke about itself that way. And in terms of the Vandalism, Vandalism Act, excuse me, one of the, the features that you draw out that I think speaks to that heritage, which is very powerfully described in the, in the book, is its role as a, as a pedagogical device. And, and pedagogy emerges at different points in the text. But I think in terms of this act in particular and the physicality of the cane and the yeah. specific cases that you're describing, it's particularly um, significant part of the, the story that you're telling. So could you speak to that aspect of it? I think that's really fascinating. It um, made me think of Fanon and how, is it in his Wretched of the Earth, where he talks about how it is the colonized elite who step into the shoes of the colonizer and then take on the stance of the colonizer vis-a-vis the non-elites, their own people, right? So whatever um, sense of solidarity that there might have been in opposing the colonizer just disintegrates once. And of course, it's a pattern to do with power that you know, takes many forms almost everywhere in different ways, but it, this similar dynamic. Um, so the parliamentary debates are just fascinating because this language of the child and disciplining the child runs throughout those debates. Um, the language of how the only thing this population, unfortunately, the only thing our population understands is either the carrot or the stick. Here's the carrot, here's the stick. This, um, this insistence, this elite insistence that the rest of the population had to be infantilized in a certain way and disciplined in quite, quite brute ways. I think, um, well, you know, it's played out in Singapore politics in many ways. It's, there's, there's a lot of patriarchy and even the great marriage debate is an instance of, um, uh, instructing the people in how to be in quite an intimate aspect of life. If you didn't approach this chronologically, why is it that they ended up being chronological? As you know, the text um, cannot be written as a stream of consciousness or a diary. We have to shape it, right? We have to shape it and step back from it and make it accessible to the reader who comes comes to it from the outside. So, and this is something that I found I need to do all the time when I'm writing. I need to write and step back and rewrite and it, there's so much rewriting um, involved in producing something that's readable and I need to constantly remind myself of how 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 important it is to admit, to communicate in a certain way and to step outside of my own head. Another reason to do that is I think narrative is powerful. N- narrative is archetypal and archetypally it works chronologically. So while I needed to understand it this way, I needed to understand how we had arrived at a particular point now and work backwards from there. To understand how much of it came from British colonial rule, Japanese occupation, Cold War, all of that, it brought so much clarity to me. And it's 
convention, it follows the conventions of narrative. I understand that narrative can, um, you know, be postmodern and, and dismantle chronology. But I think when it comes to scholarly work, when we're asking the reader to do so much anyway, um, some things need to be backgrounded. So the chronological narrative was a bit... Okay, so let's... Um Shall we say something about the Newspaper and Printing Presses Act and um, the related issues? Would you like to speak to that part of the talk? Yes, you can. <laughs> um, so let's then proceed to, well, are there other parts of the text that you would like to speak to in terms of the, the legislational cases? So we have, for instance, the... Legal Profession Amendment Act, Public Order Act is only dealt with briefly. Yeah, it was very new at the time right. I was writing. So perhaps one thing to do would be to speak sort of to what's happened since that time. <laughs> Actually, I think one of the most interesting things, I know I keep coming back to this particular piece of legislation, um, the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act, but I think one of the most interesting things about it is to the best of my knowledge, although I could be wrong, but certainly at the time of writing, it had never been enforced. So it's got all these um, technologies, which I think are drawn from the Internal Security Act and the Sedition Act. But certainly at the time of writing, possibly since then, there may have been a case of enforcement, but it had not been enforced. And that made me realize the value of the legislation didn't really didn't necessarily lie in enforcement. It lay in generating. It's it's another it's another form of pedagogy. It's another mode of instructing the public, because for it to be debated in Parliament and therefore reported um, in the press and. Typically in Singapore, major politicians will make speeches on whatever new law is being made. Made it, um, created a certain public understanding in Singapore as to what was and wasn't acceptable in terms of religious discourse and religious action and what counted as religion and a certain suspicion to do with religious institutions and and even though it has not been enforced by the state, citizens have reported other citizens or other institutions um, for what they see as violations of religious harmony. And then, um, you know, the the individual in question gets wrapped on the knuckles in some way. There are a couple of other themes which which run throughout the the case studies and the legislation that perhaps could say something more about um, pedagogy. We've we've I think addressed fairly well. A vulnerability, national vulnerability, is another theme that emerges across the case studies, particularly in the um, in the Legal Profession Act. Would you like to explain? What do you mean when you're talking about national vulnerability and how that plays into the, I suppose, the psyche of legislation? Yeah, I pulled that out as a, 
a strand of the public discourse and the legal discourse because I noticed it being repeated again and again and again. And of course it works because there is so much that resonates. It's not a fantasy. It does resonate with what people have experienced. Um, there's national and, and in, in a recent social memory. So things like um, the Japanese occupation and then the early post-war years when there was what what is conventionally known as race riots. I, you know, I don't myself think it's that straightforward. I think there are histories and complexities behind what has been shortened, shorthanded as race riots. But it creates, it, there is this social memory of um, unpredictability and disorder and that there is danger and difference. Um, and then, of course, we got thrown out from the Federation of Malaysia. And it's an iconic moment in the nation-making story, this image of Lee Kuan Yew as a very young man, you know, prime minister, for um, just, just a bit in this young nation-state, and making the announcement and actually um, breaking down tears. So he is, of course, the father of the nation and is such a strong figure, right? And convention, the way you would think of an alpha male in any other situation, you don't associate them with tears. And I don't think there is any other public image of him in tears. So whenever this, and almost every national day, in one way or another, we recount, this, this story is recounted. Um, so the vulnerability is is symbolic, substantive, and then it's embodied in this instance of Lee Kuan Yew expressing this anxiety. And it's played out in in material ways, things like we, we're a tiny, tiny island, um, 720 square kilometers at the moment because of land reclamation. But one of the favorite ways in, I had of communicating the size of Singapore when I lived in Australia was that in the North Island of New Zealand, so you appreciate that in the Australian imagination, New Zealand is already a small country. And then half of New Zealand, the North Island, there is a lake called Lake Taupo. And Singapore, before land reclamation, had the same land area as Lake Taupo. So that's how small we are. <laughs> We're very, very small. Water, water, you know, this, so the material reality of water for this dense urban population. And it was a highly political issue for a while. Um, and now Singapore has um, water recycling in a way that you know, other people might think is funny, but it's a political solution to an extreme vulnerability. And, and so your point is, of course, that vulnerability plays out also in the discourse around the writing of war and in the context of yeah, so the thing is, I think this is one of the ways in which um, the colonial history, particularly the emergency regulations, and what we see now in our perpetual state of emergency in the world, the thing about the discourse of vulnerability and you know the, the template of the emergency regulations is that it's preemptive. You don't wait for something to happen. You say, we have to do this because we are vulnerable. We are especially small, especially young. Race and religion have we have this history of race and religion being sources of violence and 
Yeah. So I think that's how it ties into preemptive action and um, the absence of certain kinds of transparency and certain kinds of, um, I don't know, accountability, maybe. Another theme that runs throughout the text and over the cases that you present is the homogenizing effect of legislation, the notion of not showing what you mean by the homogenizing effects. I think one of the things certainly I was struck by in thinking about the difference between lawmaking through precedent, you know, through something going to court and being argued, and lawmaking through legislation, particularly in a de facto one-party state. And certainly for much of the period that I was writing about, there were either no opposition members in parliament or there were you know, less than five. Um, I think it's the absence of the counter-narrative and the dissenting argument, whereas in a common law system, by definition, there is... Um, the oppositional position, the argument, the you hear difference. But if you are in a, um, if legislation is being made in a de facto one-party state, very little difference emerges, which is one of the reasons I looked so much at select committee reports. Um, for example, in the discussion of both the Legal Profession Act, the amendments of the Legal Profession Act, the Press Act, and the um, Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act, a lot of the debate occurs in those select committee hearings, not so much in terms of what people actually do say, but what they try to say. So the silences are telling as well. Um, I I think when dealing with with um, authoritarian polities, it's important to read meaning into silence and absence. Right, and you do that very effectively at, at many points of the book. Um, but at the same time, there's a, there's a presence associated with that silence, or there's multiple presences. Um, one presence that is we've alluded to at a couple of points in this discussion, but who hasn't really emerged uh, prominently and yet is in the book, both at the beginning and at the conclusion and at various points in between, is the former Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew yes. himself. And uh, I, I wonder to what extent uh, someone reading this book may think that this is in one way yet another telling of the Lee Kuan Yew story in, in so far as he has appears to have such a significant role at, at important moments in the history of this new country, developing for all of the issues with which your text is concerned, with the development of legislation, with the development of the discourse associated with the legislation, and with notions of legitimacy. I do think it's impossible to talk about Singapore without... Um without the centrality of Lee Kuan Yew. It wasn't my intention, but the data, you know, it didn't allow me to tell it any other way. I, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he was himself, he is a lawyer, and, um, and he, you know, this 
what we've been talking about at this conference, these this, these juxtapositions that inhere, that inhere within law, between law as justice on the one hand and law as force on the other hand, and all these procedural elements, everything comes under the rubric of law. Um, and, and I think as a lawyer and as something of an Anglophile, and as a reformer, you know, the, the reason, one of the reasons, perhaps the main reason we rank so highly in all these indicators has to do with the zeal with which he attacked the obvious forms of corruption. So the book was published in 2012, and um, I'd be really interested to know what you've been working on since and um, what we can look forward to, to reading in the near future. Well, I've, I've stayed with, um, I've stayed true to my fascination with rule of law discourse, so I, and, and also with my conviction that it's important to to enter the question of rule of law through um, through careful textual and contextual study. I've been looking at the World Justice Projects as an organization and its rule of law indicator because the World Justice Project is the first organization to produce a rule of law index. And I find it fascinating because it's a hybrid institution. It's, it's private, it's philanthropically funded, but and yet it does this public work and it does it in the global sphere. Um, and I think it's Carol Greenhouse who talks about how it's a feature of neoliberalism that these um, transnational institutions can emerge from the private world, not from the public world. So it's not the UN, the World Bank or the IMF anymore. We have the Open Society, we have the World Justice Project. And they do this you know, global public work. So I think as an organization, they're fascinating. And certainly the idea of measuring rule of law, and it's entirely consistent with the kind of work the indicators are beginning to do. But um, 30, 40 years ago, nobody would have thought of attaching a number to rule of law. So this builds on the indicators work, you know, um, Sally Mary Benedict Kingsbury, Kevin Davis, that huge project on governance by indicators. That's one limb of the work I'm doing. Um, and the other thing I'm looking at is rule of law in relation to post-9-11 stuff. And I have a paper that was published earlier this year called Sinister Translations, which looks at, which does an analysis of Obama's announcement on the killing of Osama bin Laden which I found fascinating because Obama's a lawyer, so he understands the importance. He made the speech and did not once use the word law. He used the word justice five times, but never used the word law. But of course, legal categories are unavoidable. He uses legal categories, but not law. And certainly he did not use the term rule of law. And um, in my paper, I, um, I argue about the ways in which the visual, because there's a video of him making the announcement, and he, it's a very regal kind of aesthetic. He's in this room which is full of red and gold, and he's in his suit, and he looks perfect, of course. Um, 
So these other ways of conveying legitimacy and harking back to perhaps a monarchical legitimacy um, and uh, and talking about the, 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 the translation at work is perhaps that of that mode of legitimacy and a movement away from rule of law. And something I haven't yet looked at but I really want to is a speech he made almost a year later about drone policy where he uses the term rule of law a lot. And another thing that I'm beginning to look at, um, and with a lot of excitement actually, is the role of the visual in post-9-11 discourses of legitimacy. So from Singapore to the world, <laughs> I think we're definitely be looking up sinister translations. I will send you a copy with thank pleasure. Thank you very much. And um, on that note, uh, Jyoti, I'd like to thank you for us joining us today to talk about your book, Authoritarian Rule of Law, Legislation, Discourse and Legitimacy in Singapore, published in 2012 by Cambridge University Press. And uh, thank you also to everyone for listening. I'm Nick Cheesman and I look forward to joining us next time on New Books. Monkey! Hey, thank God, see you at the chin of the boat. Monkey! Hey, thank God, see you at the chin of the boat.